Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, September 12, 2020. This is, I believe, the seventh installment of our 100 Proofs that the Israelites were white. Right now it is Wednesday morning, September 9th, and we have TruthVids here with us once again to present these 100 proofs, which are actually his listing. And I just make notes, hoping to help him explain it. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Over the first six presentations in this series, we covered only 20 of TruthVid's 100 proofs. And now that we are past all of the most important of the points he hopes to make, we imagine that we may progress a little faster through the next 80, but maybe not. In any case, out of necessity, we may still have to repeat ourselves, finding it necessary to explain things which we have already covered in detail. Here, our first item this evening is one of those things where we talk about a more definitive explanation of the Israelite migrations into what became known as Greece. So hopefully I'll do my best to present it from a different perspective than we've already discussed. Hello, TruthVids. Thank you for being here once again. Hey, Bill. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, th this is probably one of my favorite topics, the whole Greek mythology, the Germanic mythology, all the gods, the tales, the folklores and stories. And we can see how it essentially all related to the ancient, ancient Bible stories and traditions that Ragnarok, the great final battle where um, Tyr or Odin would fight the great serpent with his son and destroy it once for all. Well, we're living in those times right now, and uh, Zeus or Apollo, was it, would cast that, that he did cast out the great serpent. And you only have to realize that the serpent is collectively the fallen angels and all their bastard offspring. And it all makes sense. And that all these myths, are they, they really are real, that what our Germanic ancestors believed in, they just didn't have the full story. And um, what's, what's maybe even more interesting is that all the non-white religions, that they are always on the side of the serpent, that they worship the serpent, that they see it as a force for good, and even trace their origin to the serpent, that the serpent spawned all their races, and that out of chaos came order. And whilst the white European religions, especially those from the Israelites, the lost tribes, that to them, our ancestors, that the serpent was evil and that the giants and monsters that came from it are our enemy and that um, that the All-Father was, or Yahweh, Jupiter Zeus, he was a force for order and that the serpent was chaos. So yeah, but before that, we should really go over the full Greek colonization and the Phoenicians to put everything into perspective. And then we could also go on, you know, some of the mythologies and all that. So yeah, did you have anything you'd like to say, Bill? Well, well there were a couple of things. And, and when you make a presentation like this, it, it's um, broad in scope and you try to do it in a, a condensed amount of time, it's hard to think of everything that you can say in relation to any particular proof or, or point. 
when you're taking a, a, a lot of material and trying to squeeze it down into an hour and a half, even. And, and I, I don't, yet your challenge is to get this into short videos, right? So you're going to have to condense it even much further and just pick out the best material from each proof and, and be able to say it in a very short space, be able to summarize it. That, that's a challenge, right? To squeeze all of life into three-minute sound bites on a YouTube, it is a real challenge. So we discussed agriculture um, in our last presentation, I believe. And perhaps the last one or the one before that, we discussed white Israelites, that the fact that the Israelites can be proven to have been white from archaeology. And first, when we discussed agriculture, I don't, I, I don't remember. We may have neglected to make mention of the fact that the Israelite calendar and feast days were all related to agriculture and the planting and the harvest seasons. Now, now these, um, the financiers, the, the bankers and, and, and the lawyers of today and, and all throughout time have had a separate calendar. A, a, it's called a fiscal calendar, which is disconnected to the natural cycle of the seasons. This Israelite agricultural calendar that, that should be enough to prove that these were these agricultural people. Only the white race has ever um, organized its festivals and, and it, its entire social and political calendar around agriculture. And I, I don't see any of the other races having done that. And, and having had it so instilled into their culture that it, it, it is the integral part of the culture. Even today, we still have the Thanksgiving festival, which is really a harvest festival, and, and the Easter festival, which, which is pagan, but it's really a, a spring festival kicking off the summer, right? So, yeah, it shows that we were always farmers and that we would have our first fruits, our first crops, right? And, and we'd make a sacrifice, um, you know, hoping that you'd get a good harvest that year. And, and I believe even um, Halloween originally, it was right at the end when you har did the last harvest. It, it wasn't all this haunting, um, you know, and, and dressing up as monsters and all that. It actually was related to agriculture, at least originally, until the fiscal bankers twisted it. And, and so that they could sell costumes, you know, make uh, money out of it, right? Well, the, the agrarian nature of our own calendar and society and, and our feasts has been severely watered down since the dawn of the age of industrialization. There, there's no doubt. White Israelites in archaeology, one, one thing I may have mentioned are the third century AD frescoes, which were discovered in the synagogue at Dora Europis in eastern Syria. Now, now these are at least and, and probably more important than the ones that I did mention, which were discovered at Hukak. And, and in, in that area, which is in the ancient land of Galilee, because this, 
set of frescoes from Dura Europis is 275 miles east of the Mediterranean Sea. It's 300, and, it's 300 miles east of ancient Galilee. And there are several frescoes which depict Israelites of the third century AD or how Israelites saw themselves. And, and we might be able to call these people Jews by this time, but they were nevertheless Judeans and they were all white. And, and these people depicted in these frescoes, they could have been in Britain or, or Ireland. So, so the synagogue at Dori Europus, and, and I'll put a link to, to some of the frescoes or, or perhaps the Wikipedia article on it in, in the notes to this podcast when it's presented at Christagenia. But that is also another important piece of the archaeological puzzle, which beyond doubt proves that the ancient Judeans were white. And if the ancient Judeans were white, even if they became known as the people that we call Jews today, who we know are mixed, mixed race Edomites, and, and since the third century, they've mixed with people of other races. But if they were originally white, then we know that the ancient Israelites had to be white. I, I mean, it's pretty clear. So with that, I'll jump off yeah, with... I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, Bill. I was just going to say, and as you said, you already mentioned it, but a lot of the archaeology in all those regions, it shows that it's very similar to the ones in Greece, right? And that they were the same people, that they essentially took some of that technology and the learning on how to build structures and did the same in Greece. Well, well absolutely. And, and Greece at the time was a lot whiter, a lot blonder, and, and the proof of that is all over Byzantine art. If you look at all the Byzantine art, that there are that there are no dark, swarthy, hook-nosed, greasy-haired creatures in Byzantine art to speak of. It, it, they're all tall and fair and white, and and they could have dark hair, but they always had fair skin or, or white skin. The Byzantine art is representative. Of, of the actual Greeks, where today we have Greeks that had been invaded by Turks. And the Turks had been mixed with Arabs, and they ruled over Greece from the 14th century all the way to 1825. And we cannot imagine that these swarthy Greeks, these olive-skinned Greeks, that we see today are the original Greeks. They're certainly not the original Greeks, any more than these swarthy Arabs in, in Jordan and Lebanon and Syria are, are the original inhabitants of Lebanon and Syria. So that the Islamization of the region and the importation of Negroes, which we discussed, I believe, last week, into the armies and, and into the service of the Arabs as slaves, and eventually they became citizens. And being Muslims, that there were no racial barriers to intermarriage. They were torn down. So that's what made the region dark, and, and that's what made Anatolia, to a, to a great extent, 
and the Balkans and Greece itself dark. Those people today are, are, are more closely related to Arabs than they are to the rest of European Christians, or at least a great number of them. So with that, we should probably commence with point number 21, and, and this is a more definitive history of Israelite migrations into Greece. It's actually going to be um, pretty short. I, I keep looking for new ways to condense a long story into a couple of pages, and it's hard to do even for an entire podcast. So that this is... Um, my, my best shot at it for, for this week, right? Most of the early Greek writers were, or, or seem to have been, Athenians, who were primarily Ionians. Um, Homer was an Ionian, but he was from Ionia in Anatolia. Aeschylus, Euripides, they were Athenians. Thucydides was an Athenian general. Herodotus is one exception. He was a Dorian from a Dorian settlement in Anatolia, which was under Persian rule during his lifetime. So he migrated to Athens after, I believe, after having written his histories. As we had already explained earlier in this series, Ionia, as the islands and coastlands of Anatolia came to be known, were colonized by Ionians from Attica in the 8th century BC, when the Ionians displaced many Aeolian Greeks and Phoenician Carians and Malaysians in, in doing so. Around the same time, the Dorians competing with the Ionians had also made settlements in Anatolia. The Greek word from which we get Ionian is from a mythical eponymous ancestor, Ion, according to the Greeks. But in the Old Testament and in Persian inscriptions, the Ionians are identified as Javan, or in Persian inscriptions, Yavana. And they are the descendants of that Javan, the son of Japheth, who is listed in Genesis chapter 10. Now, if you look at the Septuagint, Javan is taken, is represented in Greek as Iowan, and I believe it's Iowan, I and then Omega, which is a long O, U-A-N. So it looks like Javan, but with a long O in the first syllable, in, 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 in the first in place of the first vowel instead of in a short A, right? And, and that's because the vowels in the original Hebrew are virtually non-existent and have to be filled in by the reader. So the rabbis created that little dot system to fill in the vowels, which is absolute nonsense as far as I'm concerned. The word Helen because the Greeks never called themselves Greeks, right? They called themselves Hellenes. The word Helen, spelled with two L's, is what the Greeks called themselves, and it never described a single people or nation. Rather, it described a group of tribes 
who spoke one of a family of dialects belonging to a general language, and the loose continuity of culture and religion among those tribes who spoke them. The earliest Greek writers described the Hellenes as a people of a general people of four distinct tribes, each with their own origin, their own dialects and subdialects of the Greek language. And those four tribes were the Ionians, the Aheolians, the Danans, and the Dorians. Now, in some accounts, there's only three original tribes. And the Aheolians seem to have been an early division of the Danans. Other Greek tribes are from later divisions of one of these four. Modern archaeologists and historians describe the settlements which the Danans had made in Greece and their culture as Mycenaean because their ancient capital city, Mycenae, seven miles north of Argos, was destroyed in ancient times by the invading Dorians, probably in the 12th century BC. So archaeologists called the Danans Mycenaeans, but Homer called them Danans, Danae, and he also called them Akahians. And a mountainous portion of the northern part of the Peloponnese retained the name Akahia. The Danans and the Phoenicians have frequently been linked together in Greek myths. Cadmus called the Phoenician, Cadmus the Phoenician, throughout classical Greek literature, was the legendary founder of Thebes, a significant city of ancient Greece, until it was destroyed by Alexander the Great in 335 BC. Recently, archaeology has revealed a Mycenaean settlement and Linear B tablets. Linear B is a language that's known to us from, first from the island of Crete. They discovered Linear B tablets under the ruins of the ancient city of Thebes. Danos, another character from ancient Greek historical myth. Danos the Egyptian, as he is also usually called, was the legendary leader of the Danans who came to Greece from Egypt. In his accounts of the Exodus in book 40 of his Library of History, Diodorus Siculus reflects the myth that rather than going with Moses, both Cadmus the Phoenician and Danos the Egyptian had instead migrated to Greece by sea. 400 years before Diodorus's time, the Greek tragic poets told of the flight of the Danans from Egypt in prehistoric times, but they made a parody of the story. In Greek so mythology, I'm sorry. Is, sorry. Do you think Danaeus is simply, um, you know, the patriarch Dan, one of the 12 sons, and that he became a legend, a mythical figure that they all descended from? Well, it could be looked at that way. 
that the Danans called themselves Dan, but I believe that the people who wrote of Danaeus and the myth around Danaeus, when these things, and I call it myth, because it's called a myth doesn't mean that it's a lie or it's a fable. That's not true. The Greek word muthos, M-U-T-H-O-S, simply represented something that was transmitted by mouth. And it's the word that we get our English word mouth from. Come on, M-U-T-H-O-S, M-O-U-T-H. The Greek word mythos gave us the English word mouth. And, and something transmitted by mouth, well, that's the way ancient history was transmitted. Even Herodotus, when he wrote his histories, he presented them in auditoriums for pay on a regular basis. And, and he would present them many times. And, and that's how even historians earned their livings at that time. They didn't have the capacity to mass-produce books. The tragic poets, the, the, all of these things were presented in auditoriums of, of the ancient world on an evening basis, on a nightly basis. That's how they made their money. That's how they survived. And, and that's how certain works became popular and, and were, were noted as worthy to be put into writing because it was very expensive to put these things into writing and, and, and then make many copies of them. In, in fact, ancient scribes even made their own paper. You couldn't go down to the dime store and buy some paper. <laughs> you had to make your own. And, and they made their own paper. They drew their own lines on it. They cut it into squares. And they wrote on it. And they did it all themselves. So a myth, because something's called a myth, isn't necessarily a bad thing. But you had these people named Danans that came from Egypt. And this eponymous ancestor was created who had been said to have been in Egypt with Moses and instead led his people to, to the Peloponnesus and to Greece. So we could say that it represents the patriarch Dan because we know the patriarch Dan from the Bible. But in reality, the patriarch Dan lived a couple of hundred years before the Exodus and not during it. So that, that's where some confusion might, might come into play there. And, and also just one more thing, when um, M Moses, um, you know, took the tribes and uh, our numbers were increasing, the, the tribe of Dan, uh, they didn't have a big increase, right? You could see that a portion of them just disappeared. Is that correct, Bill? I, I would actually have to look that up in, in the <laughs> Okay. I, I mean, I, I might have it here handy in, in my copy of the yeah i believe numbers. all the tribes increased greatly except dan kind of stayed the same which shows you either a lot of them died or a lot of them disappeared at one point and the number kind of stayed the same well well that happened to a few tribes and and i'm looking at it now the first sentence the first census taken by moses in in 
on the plains of Moab, and then there's a second census, and the tribe of Dan only increased by by about 3%, from about 62,700 to 64,400. That's an increase of about 3 to 4%. So it went up. Well, well, there's other tribes. Some tribes did increase significantly, even in a time when they were fighting wars. But some tribes decreased, and some increased in, in very little degree, right? I mean, Simeon went from 59,000 down to 22,000. So why did that happen? And we don't have all the records that explain it. Zebulun increased from 57,000 to 60, but Naphtali decreased from 53,000 to 45,000. So did some tribes lose more men in those wars? Or were there people that, that were breaking away and, and already going elsewhere? And, and it, it might be a combination of things that did that. But those censuses were not very many years apart from one another, if you study the book of Numbers. And more significantly, by the time of um, David and Solomon, the tribes other than Ephraim, Manasseh, and, and Judah do seem to have grown very little and and to have been diminished in their population. If you look at the figures of, of the size sizes of the armies they are able to raise throughout the 400 years of, of the kingdom period, even yet you'll see the sizes of the armies become smaller instead of becoming larger. So that there's a lot of... Um, nuances that are evident in, in the history of the scriptures, even though we don't have all of the details, and even though they are mostly only concerned with what's going on in Palestine, that you could see that there must have been people migrating away all throughout that history. There had to be. In Greek mythology, Europa was the daughter of Agenor, a king of Tyre and sister of Cadmus and Kelix. And they are the mythical founders of Thebes and Kilikia. And that's spelled today with C's. The Greeks spelled Kilikia with two K's. It's spelled today with C's. And, and a lot of people might pronounce it Cilicia. As the Greek Danans and Phoenicians were called Achaeans by Homer, Herodotus explained that in ancient times, the Kalikians were also called Hupakahians, which means sort of like beneath or under Achaeans or lower Achaeans. So if Cadmus is the elder brother, and Kelix is the younger. That might explain that, but I don't really have an explanation for that. It, it's um, virtually prehistorical. A third brother, Phoenix, 
is sometimes said to have been the father of Europa and Agenor her grandfather, depending on which of the ancient accounts that you read. So Europa was kidnapped from Tyre, according to the myths, and sent to Crete on a bull on behalf of Zeus, where she mothered the legendary King Minos and also Sarpedon and Radamantus. Sarpedon was a hero of the Trojan War who was said to have fought on the side of the Trojans. So the time frame for the Greek myth is well within that of the Israelite settlement of Palestine. Now, there are some anachronisms, right? Because Minos is said to have ruled Crete several generations before the Trojan War. So how could Sarpedon have been a warrior in the Trojan War if that was his brother? He'd be a very old man, right? So there are some minor anachronisms, but we could see that the general time frame of the myths are within the, the period of history where the Israelites had already taken the city Tyre and settled the coasts of what became known as Phoenicia. And that's because the, the um, conquest of the Israelites under Joshua all happened in, in the decades leading up to 1400 BC, maybe 1350 at the latest, that the Israelites had been able to settle this land. And the Trojan War isn't until 1200 BC, according to the best information that we have, right? It, it was um, sometime between 1200 and 1180 BC. And, and that would be from Thucydides, who actually gives the number of years that had transpired between the Trojan War and the Persian invasions of the Greeks, the Battle of Marathon, I believe, or something like that. So he's one good source for that. And, and there are other ways to lay out that chronology. A full examination of the Greek literature and other myths, such as the legend of Perseus saving Andromeda from the sea monster, which happened supposedly on the shores of Joppa, in Israel show that the early Greek civilization is inseparable from its connections to Phoenicia. But when you, if, if you removed all the references to Phoenicia from the early Greek myths, you don't have much left, Phoenicia and Syria. You really don't have much left. Many historians yeah, claim... And, and also... Um, I'm sorry, go on. So, sorry, Bill. I was just going to say there's also a lot of myths like... Um, the, you know, the King Dada came from Zeus, but, but once you realize that they believe that they came from God, and if you realize it's simply Yahweh, then it, then it all makes sense, even with all these um, crazy myths in, in it as well, like the chronological, um, you know, ancestry and family trees, right? Well, well yes, it, 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 a lot of it does fit into place. That there's nothing in, in the... Um, ancient Greek mythology that, that really is out of kilter to any great degree with, with the genealogies given in our scripture.
And even if you count the, the generations from, from the legendary Darda, the Dardanus who came to Troy and founded Troy, and, and he was said as having come from the islands of the sea to get to Troy. So he starts out in these islands, and, and you could actually make connections between Cyprus and Crete and Troy and see the same names used on certain geographical features, like there's a, a, a Jordanus or Jordanus River, and, and there's a Mount Ida in, in, um, in Cyprus, and that Jordanus River is the same word used of the River Jordan. So in ancient times, that there is a trail of names and historical places and what which allow us to see the connections as the society or as civilization shifted to the west and began to colonize or or emigrate into the west from mesopotamia and palestine there's a clear that there are clear lines what which a, a allow these connections to be made, or we wouldn't be trying to make them. It's that simple. So, so when you look at this, as Homer gave the generations of, of Darda down to um, Tros, who founded Troy, and he was a grandson or a great-grandson of Darda, down to Priam, who, who was the king of the Trojans at the time of the Trojan War, you could see six or seven generations are supplied by Homer, and that is also well within the time frame of the history of the children of Israel. If we want to make the claim that Darda was the king and one of the sons of Judah mentioned by Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 4, that when we compare that to the Greek myths and the Greek history, we don't have anything that, that is so far off that we're just making up stories or, or we're making unreasonable parallels. All the parallels are quite reasonable. Yeah, and also when you look at, um, you know, the period of judges when they started to want a king, it, you can see that this would be all at the same time of the great children battles and all the great kingdoms that were spawning up in Greece, that they would want to, the Israelites would want, would want to be like that and have all the glory and all that and have a king over them so they could be great. And, and it leads into, um, you know, Saul and, and David. It's a clear chronology, chronologically, it all makes sense, right? Well, well absolutely, it does make sense. And, and let me explain that to some point. That the age of heroes if you read all the Greek myths and legends, that they're all very consistent in, in these aspects, even though they have inconsistencies in little details. They're, they're generally very consistent in, in the, the foundational things that they lay out. And the Age of Heroes, which is the time of Heracles and Jason and the Argonauts and, and all these tales, of um, exploration and, and heroic deeds, 
was supposedly only a couple of generations before the Trojan War. So the earliest Greek myths and, and histories and the earliest Greek memories of themselves don't date to very long before 1200 BC, maybe 1300 BC. And at 1300 BC, the, the, the kingdom of Israel under the judges had already been well-established. That's around the time of Deborah and Barak, when they defeat the Canaanites in, in Phoenicia and, and the Sidonians and, and secure that land for the rule of the Israelites. And, and that's around 1300 BC, if you look at the biblical records. So after the Trojan Wars, there's a dark period of Greek history where nothing is written about. And Homer himself, right, a lot of um, scholars, if you want to call them scholars today, a lot of the academics today, they'll try to date Homer to the 8th century or to the 7th. And I would date Homer, and I could establish my reasons for this, and I could have help for it from the elegaic poets and other sources. Homer dates to about the very end of the 7th century BC, and he's the earliest of the Greek writers, except of the Greek epic poets, let me put it that way, because I believe that some of the lyric poets and the elegaic poets were writing right about the same time. And, and then there's the Hesiod question. Is Hesiod older than Homer or sooner? And, and Strabo in the first century considered Homer the, the beginning and the foundation of, of Greek historiography and, and learning and, and writing. So it's a question and it's a good valid question as to whether Hesiod or, or Homer came first, but they were not far off from one another. And a lot of legends say that they were contemporaries who wrote around the same time. So that's a possibility also. So if Homer doesn't write until the end of the seventh century, and that could be established, and I could establish that with historical facts, and the Trojan War was at the beginning of the 12th century BC, you have an almost 600 year period of a dark age, which hardly any Greek historians write about what happened during that 600 years. I don't see anything actually from any of the oldest classics. There's nothing in, in the tragic poets or Pindar or, or there's an allusion here or there to a famous king or a, a famous individual, but, but there's no history for that 600 years. And they are the same 600 years from the time of Samuel, the prophet, and the judges just before him, from the time of Samson, perhaps, to the end of the kingdom of Judah. They're the same 600 years that we see the kingdom period in Israel when the children of Israel, also known as Phoenicians to the Greeks, 
had had basically ruled the waves in the Mediterranean Sea throughout the entire Mediterranean Sea. So, why is it that that's a dark age in, and there are no Greek writers? And, and we can only speculate. And, and even when the Greeks started writing, they didn't say anything about that age. They didn't say anything detailed about that time. They may have, that they talked about the Ionians going to um, the Isles of the Sea in, in Anatolia and creating those colonies. That, that, there were loose sketches of, of things like that where we can piece things together that we know happened. They talked about the coming of the Dorians, but very little actual history exists from that period. Many historians claim that the Dorians had invaded the Peloponnese from the north, where they had mostly supplanted the Danans and founded, or, or, or I'm sorry, I shouldn't say founded, and established their own presence in cities such as Corinth and Sparta. Sparta was actually originally a Danan city, and Menelaus was the king of, of, of Sparta, the brother of Agamemnon, the ruler of the Danans, in, in the period leading up to the Trojan War. But all such interpretations of Dorians originating in the north are sheer conjecture. In Homer, who described the entire Greek world, the Dorians are only mentioned as one of the tribes present in the island of Crete, while all of the inhabitants of Greece are Ionian or Achaean, Achaean, or one of the tribes that are divisions of those, the Ion, the Aeolians, the Danans, and the Ionians were the only inhabitants. You had older tribes that were probably divisions of the Ionians, such as the Pelasgians. Some of the Aeolians are believed to have been originally Ionians, and subdivisions of the Ionians settled there before the coming of the Danans. But those three tribes are, are according to all the Greek accounts themselves, those three tribes spawned all the other tribes. So all the inhabitants of Greece are Ionian or Achaean or one or another division of those. Now, until it is realized or admitted that the Dorians came from ancient Israel, then the debates are endless, and the ancient literature can be esteemed as nonsense, because it doesn't make sense. If the Dorians came from the north into the Peloponnesus, why did they have to come by sea? They could have just walked. <laughs> but history does tell us that the Dorians came from ancient Israel. And, and let me say that all of modern history and, and all of what we know today is academia, in, in, um, especially in Germany, because this situation with, with the Jews has existed since the Middle Ages, and England and America have come to us through a Jewish lens. Everything that comes to us about antiquity goes through a Jewish filter. 
if, especially if it has anything to do with the Middle East. And that's how we get it. And nobody wants to offend the Jews, so nobody wants to break from the Jewish paradigm of, of the history of, of ancient Israel. So they won't even go here. Academics just ignore chapters in the Maccabees and chapters in Josephus, or, or they dismiss it as um, politicizing, which they've often done. That they've dismissed it as politicizing. Oh, oh, if the people at Jerusalem establish that they are kindred to the Spartans, that, that's just for political purposes. They didn't really mean it. And that's bullshit. That, that's just wrong. It's just a lie in, in order to imagine that these Jews were a different people than, than the rest of the Greeks. It's just a lie. So until it's realized, or, or I should say until it's admitted that the Dorians came from ancient Israel, that then we could debate about Dorian um, origins forever, and nothing's ever going to really make sense when we compare it to the actual historical literature. History tells us that the Dorians came from Israel. In book 12 of his Antiquities, Flavius Josephus records a letter which the king of Sparta had sent to the high priest at Jerusalem probably about 160 BC or maybe a little sooner. And he says that the letter reads, Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians. Now, Lacedaemon was the district of the Peloponnesus which surrounds the city of Sparta. It, it's maybe the lower one-sixth, the, the southeasternmost one-sixth of the Peloponnesus, or Peloponnese, as it's usually spoken. Arius, king of the Lacedaemonians, to Onias sends greetings. We have met with a certain writing, whereby we have discovered that both the Judeans, it would have said Judeans originally and not Jews, the Judeans and the Lacedaemonians are of the same family and are derived from the kindred of Abraham. It is but just, therefore, that you, who are our brethren, should send to us about any of your concerns as you please. We will also do the same and esteem your concerns as our own, and will look upon our concerns as in common with yours. Demodeles, who brings you this letter, will bring your answer back to us. This letter is foursquare, and the seal is an eagle with a dragon in his claws. Now, the eagle was the symbol of the sign of Dan, of the tribe of Dan in ancient times. And you, that can be told from scripture. And the dragon, of course, was a sign of evil. And the eagle in, in this Spartan symbol had a dragon in its claws, right? So the ancient Spartans were a people extremely proud of their heritage and, and their history. Why would they make this admission 
if they were not absolutely convinced that it, is, that it was true. Because at the time, Sparta was subject to Rome. Sparta, even though the Spartans were a proud people, Sparta was only a shadow of its former self. It ground itself down along with Athens it, throughout the Peloponnesian Wars. And by the fourth century, it was in such a mean state that even the Thebans, and Thebes was never really a great force in um, Greek military and politics. Thebes had been an ally of Persia when the Persians invaded Greece. So that they, that they were on the outs, but they rose to, to be the most powerful city-state in Greece in the 4th century BC. And, and that's really, in, in my opinion, because Athens and Sparta had decimated each other during the Peloponnesian Wars. They ground each other down. Yeah, the Spartans, the Spartans were very stoic as well, weren't they? That they refused to use like projectiles and, and they insisted on everything had to be hand-to-hand fighting. And it's interesting, the Romans learned a lot from them. They, they saw their decline and realized that you can't always be that way, right? So, so it's just fascinating when you look at that. That Sparta, um, you know, was a lesson also to Macedonia on army tactics and all that. Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt. And, and the, the, um, the Macedonians had the, the good fortune of quite a few histor- historical lessons that Philip and Alexander both took advantage of. But yes, that the, the, um, the, the, the Spartans were very, I don't want to call it crude, but their tactics were, um, they were definitely different, right? That they did believe in heavy armor and hand-to-hand combat, those heavy Spartan shields, what which even the shields alone could probably kill a man the, the way they were constructed if hit with enough with enough force and they had those um, pointed projections on the front of them and and the shield itself was a was an important weapon and it was treated offensively and not just defensively yet yeah the Spartans were were um what were very fierce warriors and and trained constantly for it it, it was their entire culture at, all throughout the history of ancient Sparta that they were a society that thought of war and, and really not much else, ruled by oligarchs. So that they were always described as being very warlike and very capable of it, but they had those, I, I don't want to call it crude, but, but they had those, that old-fashioned idea of war, right, and honor. And, and method of fighting. That's probably too much of a digression. These Spartans, and my point is this, these Spartans, that they may have been seen as kissing up to the people in Jerusalem because they themselves were subject to Rome, but politically they had no real reason to. They couldn't have imagined that the people of Jerusalem, a single city, could have conquered the Romans for them. And, and it was another hundred years before the Romans conquered Jerusalem. 
which happened probably around 62 to 65 BC in there. But the Spartans couldn't have been looking at Jerusalem for salvation. At the same time, on the same missions, the people of Jerusalem were reaching out to friendship with the Romans. So they weren't anti-Roman. The Spartans may have seen the, the Romans as, as, a, um, as an ally in, in their own struggles with the Macedonians who, who had basically conquered Sparta at, at the time of Alexander the Great and, and Philip of Macedon, his father. So Sparta was already subject to the Macedonians and the Romans fought wars against the Macedonians in, in, in which the, the um, Spartans, I, I don't, I, I'm not that familiar with the Roman-Macedonian wars that I can comment on it. It's a little past my, most the time of most of my reading. But I'm sure that the Spartans were no friends of the Macedonians either. So I don't think that the Spartans were actually looking for political advantage over Rome writing this letter to Jerusalem. And if it weren't true that they were kindred, I don't think it would have been recorded in that manner. I don't think they would have made that profession. They didn't have to in order to gain friendship with the people of Jerusalem who had just who, who had not yet been freed of the Syrians when this was written. In, in other words, if the people of Jerusalem had already defeated Antiochus and, and the Seleucid kings of, of Greek Syria, then you might be able to say that this letter was to curry political favor. But the people at Jerusalem, when this letter was written, were under the rule of the Greek kings of Syria. When they defeated the Greek kings of Syria, a few years after this letter was written, then they became a notable military force in the, in the region. But they weren't there yet. And there was no indication at this time that the Maccabees could have overthrown the Greek kings of Syria, which they were underdogs. That, it, that was a, a, um, a shocking victory when they were able to do that. The Syrians had commanded many more troops and, and a much greater area of land that, than the Maccabees had the inhabitants of one city and a few surrounding towns. That's all they had going for them. And a few towns in Galilee. That's all they had. Okay, that's a digression too. But there's no way that this letter was written simply to curry the political favor of the people in Judea. This letter must have been written because the Spartans came to realize from their own history that they were indeed related to the people in Judea, in Jerusalem. And that's why they wrote this letter. So the letter from the king of the Sparta to the high priest at Jerusalem, which was preserved by Josephus, is also preserved in chapter 12 of the apocryphal biblical book of 1 Maccabees. And in chapter 14, 
The later emissary mission to Rome and Sparta is described, which Josephus also goes on to report. So here we have full corroboration of the assertions of Paul of Tarsus, where in his first epistle to the Corinthians, and the Corinthians were also Dorian Greeks, the Spartans at the time of that letter were Dorian Greeks, and so were the Corinthians. And Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 10 of that letter that, moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea. So you have two witnesses and one of those witnesses is corroborated in Maccabees or in Josephus, right? That's one witness that the Dorians were related to the Israelites. And Paul of Tarsus is another witness where he said that. In the ancient Greek accounts, it is explained that the Dorians were brought to the Peloponnese by the sons of Heracles because the sons of Heracles had been expelled by the Achaeans. So the Dorians, the sons of Heracles had to leave and they brought the Dorians back as retribution against the Achaeans. But Heracles was identified as a Phoenician. He was born at Thebes in Greece to Alcmene. Alcmene was a Phoenician woman who was said to have been impregnated by Zeus. And while I believe the myth represented a more enigmatic truth, the Phoenician connections to Palestine and Israel should be clear enough. And, and I could talk about what I really think that that myth represents, if, if you want to take another digression. But we see... Yeah, that, sure, it was that Hercules means uh, traders, isn't it? That yeah. That meant the Phoenicians, right? If, if you study that word Heracles... In, and, and know that he was a Phoenician from Thebes and, and that the Phoenicians in Thebes spoke the same language as, as the Hebrews. It was their language. They were Israelites. Well, well Heracles, the, the only um, Hebrew etymology that makes any sense at all is that Heracles is a Hellenized version of Ha-Rakal. Rakal is a merchant. Ha-Rakal is the merchant. Ha-Raklim would be the merchants, plural. But the Greeks had a, had a different way of, of creating their nouns and so that they could conjugate them, they would end it with an S instead of an I-M. And Heracles has to come from Haraklim, which is the merchants in Hebrew. So if that is true, then what we have is a myth which is encapsulating a struggle between the Danan Greek Israelites and the Phoenician Israelites for control of the Peloponnese. 
So the Phoenician merchants were ejected and came back with the Dorians to ensure that they were going to have control of the Peloponnesus. That's the way I see, that's what I believe the myth actually represents, right? And, and that may be considered conjecture, and that's fine. But if you look at the, the, all the legends of Heracles have to do with all the places that he traveled to and how Heracles traveled all over Gaul and, and all through Egypt, and, and he traveled the whole known world in his feats. Well, that basically to me represents the Harakalim, the Phoenician merchants. That's what it represents to me, but it's, it's wrapped in a myth. So that might be conjecture, but, and I can't prove that it's true, but it's an awfully enticing interpretation of the ancient myth, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and every tribe always wanted dominion over the um, Mediterranean Sea and all the trade routes. That, that's what wars are generally about, right? And it makes sense that they would want the Phoenicians out so they could control it all once they'd settled there. And the Phoenicians just went back to, um, you know, their tribes in Israel and said, hey, why don't we just conquer this land, you know, and just take it all? Well, well, right, and and Herodotus, I, I can only, um, I can't elaborate too much because it's been a long time since I've read it. But if you read Herodotus, he he actually remembers the time when the Phoenicians controlled the entire Mediterranean Sea, and he spoke about it, and and then he says that after the Phoenician power in the Mediterranean had had been eclipsed even though he always said that they controlled the Western Mediterranean, in relation to the Eastern Mediterranean, he listed a few other tribes that had control of it at, at diverse times down to his own. So yes, I mean, control of the sea, to possess the gates of thine enemies. Control of the sea, control of trade, we've always competed with each other for that, right down to the time of the British Empire. Uh, Bill, I meant to ask you about that dark age of Greek history. Do you think that um, it could have slowly been covered up, like every tale that linked Greece to Israel, that the Jews have been slowly trying to remove all historical links, and that would also explain why there's a dark history? Or do you just think there was no real writing because um, Israel ruled the whole region, right, and Solomon had tribute from everyone? Well, well, right, and and that is also a, a conjecture, but I do lean toward that interpretation that that the um, the Israelites did have control of those Mediterranean regions, but it was wiped from history, or or they were trying to assert it. They may have been competing with the Ionians. Yet, you know, it, it, the world did not exist in in a vacuum. That these different cultures. They fully knew and understood each other. The, the Herodotus, that the ancient Greeks could read Akkadian inscriptions because they also had to be able to speak Akkadian during the, the centuries that Assyria ruled the East because they had trade and commerce. Greeks fought as mercenaries. If you read the lyric poets, Greek soldiers fought as mercenaries 
for the Babylonians at the destruction of Jerusalem in 585 BC. It's spelled out right in the lyric poets. I don't remember which one. It might be Sappho, it might be one of the others. I don't, I forget, but it's in there. So, so the, the world didn't exist in, the, the Greek world didn't exist in a vacuum separate from the Babylonian or the Assyrian. And, and the Israelite world certainly didn't exist in a vacuum. And, and we're told in scripture that these Phoenicians and these, and, and these who are the Israelites had control of the seas. So they must have had great influence over the tribes of the Greeks, especially those which descended from the Phoenicians. The, the, the fact that um, the Tyrians had maintained a, a great deal of political influence or control over the Carthaginians is evident all the way down to the time of the Persian Wars. And historians don't like to make this connection for some reason. But when Xerxes was getting ready to invade the Greeks in Greece, right? Athens, Sparta, Thessaly. At the same time, the Carthaginians made war on Sicily. And that had to be coordinated. And that had to be coordinated because the Persians ruled over Tyre and Carthage was a Tyrian colony. And it had to be coordinated for this reason, because the greater number of Greeks actually lived in Sicily and southern Italy at this time. And most of what we know as Italy was called Magna Grecia or Greater Greece because the Greeks in Italy and Sicily had become more populous and, 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 and thrived greater than the Greeks in Greece. Italy was a whole lot more fertile than Greece was, could produce a lot more food that, than Greece did. So that the Persians needed to make sure that those Italian Greeks were not able to come to the assistance of the people of, of Greek proper, of Greece proper. The best way to do that would have the Phoenicians make war, invade Sicily, which they did. They were always fighting with the Greeks over Sicily anyway. And that happened at the same time Xerxes went into, went, went into Greece. Now Xerxes, he, he lost decidedly. But perhaps he would have had a much greater chance of, of a, a much lesser chance of victory. He would have had no chance of victory if those Italian Greeks were not fighting with the Carthaginians and were able to come to the aid of the Greeks, but they couldn't. So for that reason, and, and that, that's why I believe that the invasion of... of Sicily by the Carthaginians was actually planned from ancient Tyre by the Persians. So that shows that the Tyrians still had, and, and Herodotus mentions the allegiance that the Carthaginians had to Tyre. He mentions it. So it, it, I've never written a paper on that subject, right? Perhaps one day I, I could put some facts together, but probably not.
it, it, you can't write everything that you might observe from history books. Can't be done. So, the Phoenicians. The Israelite conquest and occupation of the coast of Palestine as far south as Joppa, because the Philistine cities were south of Joppa, but the Israelites controlled Joppa and all the points north, all the way to Sidon, and, and that's quite obvious in Scripture. Even if in the period of the judges, a particular man rose up to become king over the city of Tyre, a predicament which David had later accepted, Hiram, the king of Tyre during David's time, had nevertheless submitted himself to David. So the connection of Cadmus, the Phoenician, to Moses and the ancient Israelites is explicit in the account of the Exodus repeated by Diodorus Siculus. And although it is probably not literally true, it does indeed represent truth. The Greeks gave that same coastal land, which was controlled by the Israelites, the name Phoenicia, after their word for the purple dye, which the inhabitants of the coast had produced. Now, wherever you see the word Greek in the Old Testament, you don't, yet, you, the Hebrew word is... Yavana, or Javan, which identifies the Ionians. If the Dorians had been the leading lights of culture and literature in classical Greece, perhaps we would have seen different identifications. But as I explained when we started this evening, the Athenians were the center of, of culture and education and writing in classical Greece. So most of what we see in classical Greek writing is the attitude of the Athenians. And, and the Athenians had no history with ancient Israel, except as mercenaries for the Babylonians or, or the Assyrians. So they just called that land Phoenicia, after their word for the purple dye. The so-called Golden Age of Phoenicia began shortly after the Israelites came to inhabit the land. And Hebrew arts and letters were brought to Greece by the ancient Phoenicians, as the ancient Greeks themselves have described. Was um, all the literature of the Athenians, was it written, written in uh, the Phoenician alphabet, or did they originally have their own and it gradually got merged? Well, well... Yeah, you know, I believe letters were found that could be associated with the ancient Trojans by archaeologists who they also used that same Phoenician type script. I don't think they had their own. I don't think any European had their own. That there are um ancient, well, they're said to be very ancient letters found in, in the Peloponnesus that were pre-Mycenaean, but I don't know if they were actually pre-Mycenaean. And, and it's evident to me that Israelites were probably visiting in, in 
visiting in Greece and Southern Europe, even long before the Exodus, when was the Phoenician or Hebrew alphabet developed is another question because the archaeology of the land of Canaan reveals that the Canaanite inhabitants wrote in cuneiform. The Hebrews used their own script, which we know as the Phoenician alphabet that made it to Europe, and all the modern nations of Europe used that script, and the ancient Greeks used that script, and the ancient Romans used that script. But the Canaanites and, and the Syrians up until the time of, of the Hebrew conquests of the area, all of the archaeology reveals that they used cuneiform, which is what was used by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Now, the Egyptians had their own hieroglyphic set, and, and that's distinct from what the Mesopotamians had used. But we don't find Egyptian hieroglyphics in ancient Greek writings. There was a tablet that was discovered that I'm trying to remember the name of, and I can't. And, and it's believed to be far older than Mycenaean culture, I believe. Earliest Greek writing is, okay, here it is. I, I do have it. It's an article at Christagenia titled, Earliest Greek Writing is Phoenicia. And, and let me make a note of it here because I'll put it, I'll, I'll link it when I present this podcast at Christagenia. Herodotus had said, and this is from the Histories, Book 5, now the Phoenicians who came with Cadmus and to whom the Gepharahi belonged, a tribe of Greeks, a sub-tribe, introduced into Greece upon their arrival a great variety of arts. Among the rest of that, writing, whereof the Greeks till then had, as I think, been ignorant. So Herodotus, writing around 450 to 430 BC, he thought that the Greeks were ignorant of writing until the coming of the Phoenicians. So there's an engraved piece of copper, and it's known as Manuscript 108. Don't ask me why. And it represents the earliest known writing in Greece. And it's clear relationship, and these are my words, it's clear relationship to Hebrew Phoenician, the Hebrew Phoenician North Semitic alphabet substantiates the testimony of ancient Greek writers who attest that the Greek alphabet was developed from the Phoenician. So this tablet is in the Shoyan collection. And I actually wrote the curators of the Shoyan collection to get permission to put pictures of this tablet at Christagenia because they had it copyrighted and I had to do that. And they said of it that an ab abacetary or an abacetary, an abacetary, it's a long word that has to do with A, B, C, D, right? A, B, E, C, E, D, A, R, Y is the word. Abacetary. And it just refers to an alphabet tablet. Don't ask me why they just don't call it an alphabet tablet, right? They're going to invent this fancy word for it. 
an adversary contemporary with Homer, an amazing preservation of students' learning of the Greek alphabet at the very inception of its use. The alphabet is repeated over and over and contains the North Semitic or Phoenician number of letters, which is 22 letters. Again, Aleph to Tau in Phoenician and Greek order, written in the continuous retro in continuous retrograde lines. It represents the earliest and most complete link between Greek letter forms and the North Semitic parent forms. So this is well known that the Greek alphabet came right from the Phoenician and that the earliest representations of the Greek alphabet in Greece had the Phoenician number and form of letters. Now the Greeks added a few letters and they subtracted a few letters over their over their history, by the time we get to classical Greek, some of the letters are a little different, but it's still the same alphabet. And in all fairness, I must state that there is an inscription, another inscription extant with competing claims to be the oldest Greek alphabet. And that's called the Dispilio tablet. And I have a link to that tablet here. And claims have been made that the Dispilio tablet is over 7,000 years old. And even though that would not upset my worldview, the fact that the Greek alphabet of 700 BC came from the Hebrew is very clear, not only in the shapes of the characters and the sounds they represent, but also in the names of the characters, the order they were drawn, and in the many historical accounts of the Greeks themselves. So the Dispilio tablet claims to have been carbon dated to around 7,300 years ago, which is 5,200 BC. And to me, the first problem with that is that if I go into the forest and I find a board, a piece of wood, and I want to make inscriptions on it. But what if the piece of wood's already a thousand years old or 500 years old? That doesn't mean the inscriptions are a thousand years old or 500 years old. It certainly doesn't. How can you date wood? Now, maybe I cut down a tree and cut a tablet from it and made an inscription. Well, what if the tree was already 2,000 years old? There are trees on this planet that we know are very, very old. So how can you say from carbon dating how old the inscription is? You can't. You can know how old the piece of wood is that what the inscription was made on, but you can't tell how old the inscription is. And they're claiming a gap, a historic gap of 4,000 years, even though this Dispilio tablet has letters on it that look like Hebrew letters, the tablet isn't necessarily that old. And just because the Phoenicians came to Greece at an early time, let's say with the Danans, maybe they first appeared in 
1300, 1200, 1100 BC with the Dorians, whenever. Does that mean that they were the only Hebrews that were ever in Greece? That possibly 500 or 1,000 years before them, others couldn't have been there, but didn't establish permanent settlements. So that you can't rewrite history because you find this tablet. You just can't do it. It makes no sense. And, and it doesn't. It, it's not logical to do so. So they could shove their dysphilio tablet or, or their, their, their interpretations of it because I believe those interpretations have to be wrong. They just have to be. <laughs> we have a clear historical narrative. I would interpret the dysphilio tablet differently. It has to be interpreted differently. They're trying to undermine our entire historical understanding. And I would rather trust the records that we have, which have many witnesses. So that's my opinion. I don't know if you have anything to add to that. Yeah, I would just say they always try and make uh, you know shocking discovery that proves that a Bible might be forced or that it doesn't add up. They do that all the time. But, but but yeah, it's also it's fascinating that the um, Ionians were using our alphabet, right? That that all these Athenian, uh, all the writers were actually writing in Hebrew. I find that fascinating. Right, but the perspective that we get from histories is usually Athenian, <laughs> and it doesn't belong to people that were descended from the Israelites. That now, <coughs> we don't know enough about antiquity to understand the full influence that Phoenicians or Danans or Dorians could have had on the Ionians, the Athenians. We don't. But even when you examine the discourse of, of Paul of Tarsus with the Athenians, you do realize that they are not Israelites very quickly because Paul never spoke to them about Jesus or covenants or Abraham or any of that. And the same is true of the Lycians when he when he went through um, Lycia Lycaonia in in Acts chapter fourteen Lycaonia, which is in the south of Anatolia. Speaking of more ancient times, the terms Hebrew, Israel, or Judah were not generally used by Greeks of the classical period. In fact, I don't remember them being used at all. In Against Athion, book one, Flavius Josephus is addressing a Greek critic of scripture and Judean history. And he's actually showing um, Athion from Greek history that Judea had a, was of great antiquity. The, the people, the Israelites in Judah, were of great antiquity, but Josephus always calls them Judeans. And of course, in in most in our translations in modern times, that means they're always called Jews. But Jew and Judean are not the same thing. So, in Against Athion, Book One, Flavius Josephus cited Herodotus, where he spoke of circumcision, and he said the Phoenicians and those Syrians that are in Palestine confess that they learned it from the Egyptians. Now, 
The ancient Egyptians did practice circumcision, but the Philistines, whom scripture informs us, were descendants of the Egyptians. They did not maintain circumcision, and neither were the Canaanites circumcised. So in response to that statement by Herodotus, where Josephus cited it, he made the remark that there are no inhabitants of Palestine that are circumcised except the Judeans, the term which he used to describe Israelites. In his histories, Herodotus referred to the people of Judah as the Syrians of Palestine, or even simply as Syrians. In his account of the death, and he doesn't name Josiah, but if you look at the circumstances, in Histories, Book 2, paragraph 159, maybe that could be called chapter 159, Herodotus describes the death of Josiah, king of Judah, where he died at Megiddo, fighting the Egyptians around 609 BC. But instead of saying Judah or Judeans, Herodotus calls them Syrians. So, and, and when you read it, there's no doubt it's a description of the death of Josiah, king of Judah, that we see in, in the accounts of our scriptures. So, and that happened around 609 BC. In that same book against Appion, Josephus said that nor was our nation unknown of old to several of the Greek cities, and indeed was thought worthy of imitation by some of them. This is declared by Theophrastus in his writings concerning laws, for he says that the laws of the Tyrians, now notice that Josephus is talking about our nation. The laws of the Tyrians forbid men to swear foreign oaths. Now, Joseph, Josephus says, among which he, meaning Theophrastus, enumerates some others, meaning some other laws, and particularly that called Corbin, which oath can only be found among the Judeans and declares what a man may call a thing devoted to God. In other words, the law of Corbin declares what it is that a man can call sanctified, right? Because some things can't be sanctified in the Hebrew Bible. You can't sanctify a pig or a nigger. You just can't. No matter how you want to clean them up, they can't be sanctified. So... Here, Josephus, if you examine this language, took it for granted that by referring to Tyrians, Theophrastus was referring to Israelites. And he asserts that only Judeans had such laws, by which he means the Israelites of his own time and place. Theophrastus was a Greek philosopher and follower and successor of Aristotle, in the fourth century BC. This impact, which the Phoenicians had on Greek history, predates the expansion into the Western Mediterranean, which mostly transpired from the time of King Solomon and Hiram, King of Tyre's ships of Tarshish. 
So the Phoenicians were already settling in Greece and, and making an impression on the Greeks before the time of Solomon. The temple in Jerusalem was built, according to Josephus, in book one of his Against Appion. The temple at Jerusalem was built in the 12th year of King Hiram of Tyre, and Carthage was founded in the 156th year, according to Josephus. So we could tell from that that Carthage was built 144 years after Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem. Then in book two, citing Greek sources, Josephus gives the date of the founding of Carthage to be the first year of the seventh Olympiad. Now, if you understand ancient Greek chronology, the seventh Olympiad would begin in 752 BC. The first Olympiad commonly being reckoned by historians as 776 BC. So, 752 BC, by Greek reckoning, as Josephus explains in Against Appion, Book 2, 752 BC is the founding of, of Carthage. And in Book 1, as he explained it, by the reckoning of Menander of Ephesus, and I didn't mention him, but Josephus's source for the Chronicles of Ancient Tyre, a document which I would love to get my hands on, but it's lost to time, is Menander of Ephesus, whom Josephus quotes and explains that this Menander of Ephesus had actually taken the ancient Phoenician chronicles of Tyre and translated into Greek. And that's how Josephus knew them, from the Greek translation. But now they're gone. If we had those chronicles, what a story I'm sure they would tell. <laughs> I know we had a yeah, lot it's of all, digressions. Um, lost the time, uh, but 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 um, Jews always try and separate um, Tyre from Israel, right? Uh, I think we briefly mentioned it. They try and say Phoenicia was this separate coast, right? And therefore they were Canaanites, and then that all Europe comes from these Canaanites. Right. But you can very clearly see they they were Israelites, right? Exactly. I, I mean, look at and and I cited Judges chapter 5 last week here in, in, in our descriptions of Phoenicia and the history of the migrations. Deborah, the prophetess, in Judges chapter 5, accompanies Barak, the general of, of the armies of Israel at that time. He's the judge. And he leads them in an expedition against the Canaanites. Sisera and the Canaanites. So they're fighting against the Canaanites. And Sisera and his armies are destroyed. And Deborah, in her song, celebrating the victory, said, why does Dan remain in ships? And Asher, meaning the tribe of Asher, abode in his havens by the sea. That word havens is the Hebrew word that describes a port for shipping. Asher abode in his breaches and in his havens by the sea. So right there, Deborah is saying that the tribe of Dan and the tribe of Asher did not take part 
in the fighting against the Canaanites because they were hanging out on the seashore <laughs> and engaged in shipping and, and their mercantile that their mercantile industries or undertakings. They weren't engaged in the battle. And Deborah's asking why. She's basically saying, where the hell are Dan and Asher? They're hanging out in the sea and by the seashore. That alone proves that at that time, 1300 BC, approximately, it's the Israelites fully inhabiting the cities of the coast of Phoenicia. There are yeah, and um, all these other ways. Um, I'm sorry. You know, after um, the kingdom fell, uh, Assyria deported. They'd all have to fend for themselves, right? And then eventually become their own civilizations. And we see that in the history of, um, you know, all the battles with Rome, etc. Well, well, yes, absolutely. All down through history, we see that. In in um in the New Testament, right? There's a reference to a woman who's of the tribe of Asher. She's the only Israelite mentioned in the New Testament who's not of the tribes of Levi, Judah, or Benjamin. Because the 42,000 people who returned after the Babylonian conquests and the Assyrian deportations and captivities and the Babylonian captivities of the last of the people at Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the only people that returned in 520 BC were of the tribe of uh, 42,000 people of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and Levi. That's it. And none of the other tribes in Israel really retained their identity. Even the scattered Samaritans who, who were of Ephraim, like that woman at the well in Samaria in John chapter 4, she must have been of the tribe of Ephraim because she stood there and professed to Christ that she was a descendant of Jacob and he didn't question it. So there were some remnant Israelites in Samaria. She must have been one of them, but they lost their tribal identification. They were no longer known as Manassehites or Ephraimites. <clears throat> they simply became known as Samaritans. And there were other people, strangers, brought to Samaria. And they also became known as Samaritans by, by their geography, not by their, because that was the land of Ephraim, not by their tribe. So this one woman was known to have been of the tribe of Asher. And how could that be? And you only understand how that could be if you understand the history of Tyre. Well, Flavius Josephus, and this is also missing from the modern versions of scripture, where Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent a man, an artificer, a craftsman, to help build all the things that Solomon needed for the temple. That craftsman was also called Hiram. Josephus explains that he, this Hiram of Tyre, this artificer, was his mother was of the tribe of Naphtali and his father was of the, the tribe of Dan. And that's missing from our modern scriptures. But Josephus was working from a copy of Hebrew scripture that he had that's obviously better that, than the ones that we have surviving today. 
that the Jews evidently dropped a lot of information out of. Where would Josephus get that story? He didn't make it up. So, so there's a lot of little things in history that, that help us to positively identify these people. But Anna, who was of the tribe of Asher in the New Testament, in Babylonian, in, in Assyrian times, the Assyrians didn't penetrate Tyre. They didn't destroy Tyre. The king of Tyre submitted himself to the Assyrians and paid his tribute. So the Assyrians left Tyre unscathed. In Babylonian times, the Tyrians revolted against Babylon. And the Babylonians destroyed the mainland portion of Tyre. But Tyre had a large portion that was in the sea that the that was a hundred or so yards off the coast that the Babylonians, not having good control of the Mediterranean shipping, which was controlled by the Phoenicians, couldn't reach. They couldn't defeat it. So the main the, the mainland portion of Tyre was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, but the island was virtually unscathed. And it was basically described as a fortress in the sea. It was a walled island. You couldn't get, you, you couldn't just get into it by a boat. So, 250 years later comes Alexander the Great and the Tyrians in the sea would not submit to him. So he took, I believe it was seven or eight months and, and the description of this is in Josephus. He took seven or eight months and had his soldiers fill in the land, fill in land between the mainland and the sea to fill in a walkway, a, a roadway with the ancient ruins of the city that it still laid there in destruction. All the walls of the ancient city that were torn down, all the buildings that were destroyed, the soldiers of Alexander used that material to fill in a roadway to the island and secure it, to build it securely, so that the armies of Alexander could reach the walls of the island city and destroy it. And they did. But in the meantime, in those 200 years, 250 years between the book of Nezar and Alexander, the Tyrians, who remembered their identities as Israelites, they must have, for Anna to know that she was of the tribe of Asher. They must have remembered who they were. And they must have also remembered who they were for Josephus to be able to speak about them like he did in Against Appion and in his Antiquities. Yeah. So... The Tyrians didn't stay on that little island of Tyre for those 250 years. They actually took part with the Persians in the Persian Wars against the Greeks. They built ships for them. They spread themselves in the Persian period back to points on the mainland where they could engage because of their expertise in shipping and shipbuilding, where they could engage in those maritime antiquities. Maritime activities, once again, 
and they were important instruments for the Persians in the Persian Wars. The problem was that by that time, the Greeks were a lot stronger because the Persians, according to Herodotus and other accounts, the Persians lost 2,500 ships, mostly built by the Tyrians, by the Phoenicians, at the Battle of Salamis. In one day, they lost all their ships, and, and the Athenians defeated them that badly at sea. So, Xerxes... Yeah, and also when... Um, sorry. I'm when sorry. Alexander took um, Tyre... They loaded all their um, women and children onto boats, you know, just for safety. And where did they go? To Carthage. <laughs> you right. Know, if, if they felt safe that their women and children were safe in Carthage, they must have been kin, right? Right. Uh, proving again what you said. Right. When he was filling in that 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 causeway out to the island <laughs> with all of those um, stones and 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 structures that have been left from the decimated city that were never rebuilt that that um the mainland part of tyre was never rebuilt from the time in the book of Mezar, 250 years down to the time of alexander the ruins were there and he just used them to fill in that causeway that the, that he had his soldiers build the tyrians did many of them escaped and went to carthage but the point is that if the Tyrians were not Israelites, we wouldn't have Anna of the tribe of Asher mentioned in our New Testament. Was the um, king of Tyre, was he an Israelite for sure, uh, Hiram? Well, well, I would bet that he was, but we just don't have his genealogy. We don't know. We don't have enough of that. Well, we don't have any of the history to know how he became a king. But in those days, a man could become a king of a city. And, and, but most of the kings of the cities at the time, especially in, in the Greek world, were just the, the noble men who rose up and, and did something great, won some battle or, or whatever, and, and they were recognized as, as the leader of the city. And, and they became the kings. I mean, the world was built on little city-states where, where a city would become powerful and be able to control the territory in its vicinity, which it relied on for food and, and water and things like that. So, so that's the, the, the concept of a city-state is very natural. It, it would be very easy in the period of the judges and, and perhaps, we don't even know, perhaps Hiram was simply the Israelite chieftain who was the natural leader. We don't know. We don't have enough of the, the, the history left from the judges' period to be able to tell how Hiram became the king of Tyre. He may have been just an Israelite elder that rose naturally to that position. We don't know. But there was nothing wrong with it. David acknowledged it, but Hiram submitted himself to David. He recognized David's rule. And that's why he helped him. And that's why he continued to help Solomon. By the time of Jezebel, Jezebel was the daughter of Ithbal, Ithobalus, or Ithbal in scripture. It's Ethbal, I believe. And Ethbal was a pagan priest of Baal who had slain 
the descendants of Hiram and usurped the throne of Tyre. That's explained by Josephus from the Chronicles of Tyre, preserved by Menander of, of Ephesus. Why would an Ephesian really care about the Chronicles of Tyre? <laughs> he was probably a Phoenician because many Phoenicians dwelt at Ephesus and, and Miletus, even in the Greek period, after it had been conquered by the Ionians. Thales of Miletus was one of the seven sages of ancient Greece, and Herodotus said that he was a Phoenician by race. He probably lived in the sixth century, probably. Okay, I think we've digressed enough, but I think we may have only covered two points. So, yeah, that's cool. Uh, did you want to go on to the paganism, or would you want to? I think we should probably cut it here because I don't want to cut this short, the paganism thing. I, I really don't want to cut it short. We really have to treat this fully. Um, and I don't know how much you're going to have to say. I mean, I could do this in half an hour. Yeah, but, yeah I had quite a lot prepared. <laughs> we might want really to leave this for next week. All the Germanic gifts, you know, and tie it in with, you know, the Bible and Revelation. Yeah, I, I, I think we should really leave this here. Okay. And we'll start next week with the fact that paganism does identify who are the lost sheep. Yes, it does. As long as you realize that the Israelites departing from Palestine were pagans, that they were never Hebrews or they certainly weren't Jews. Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, I mean, it's it's been fun again. And I just hope in the end you can make sense of it all so that you can put a good video together. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll trim it down, get all the best parts, and then um, compile it in the video. I've almost, I'm still working on part one to ten, the first video, but, but it's looking better and better each time I look at it. So, yeah. So, yeah, th thanks for having me again, Bill. Praise Yahweh. God of Israel, God of our European race. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here and praise Yahweh.